Hello, Bob Geldof says that Brexit is going to put us in cultural jail, so if he wants to get used to it, he's welcome to visit us here in the Romaniacs underground culture bunker, <laughs> where conditions are basic, but at least it's warm. Too warm, in fact. Again, yes, <laughs> steamy. I'm Ros Taylor. In my day job, I try to sort fact from fiction at the Truth, Trust and Technology Commission at the LSE, and I've got two of our regulars with me today. Alex Andreu is the actor, opera singer, columnist and cookery writer known as Sturdy Alex on Twitter and he is the best thing to come out of Greece since Maria Callas. <laughs> or, or the Elgin Marbles even, but we're not, we're not going to send him back though. <laughs> Hello Alex, welcome back. We noticed you've been enjoying the story of the bollocks of Brexit banners put up by Charlie Mullins of Pimlico Plumbers. Enormously. Um, I, I especially loved a BBC uh, London report where they went out to get vox, vox pops from local people whether they minded the word bollocks, and no one basically did. Um, and then this old girl, she, she said, oh, that B word, I can't stand it, drives me around the bend. And on closer investigation, she meant Brexit. She didn't mind bollocks, but she, she hated the word Brexit. Excellent. Because apparently Charlie Mullins is in discussion to get it on the side of a bus, but he won't take it down, ever. He says he'll go to jail first. That's that's what he that's what he said. That that uh, I think it's about to happen actually. Oh. I what think is he, the jail or the bus? No, no, no. I think he secured the additional sites from what I saw on Twitter yesterday. So it's going to go up on twenty sites now. Oh wow! This big banner. That's, that's good because we've had Andy from Pimlico Plumbers round at our house this week, and I can only say that. Well, you know, I'm hoping the money's going towards a good cause. <laughs> um, Andy, Andy is an excellent plumber, and he has sorted out our boiler. So thank you, Andy. Anyway, can you shift opinions with rude words? I mean, is it possible? Is bollocks bollocks really going to get us there? Yeah, I think so. I think some I think some things are too important to be polite about. If I'm honest, hmm. so fuck yes. <laughs> No, no. Also, you can edit that out. You can edit that out because Ian is here, so we can't possibly edit that out now. Um, also, with us is someone who, if you could change people's opinions by swearing at them, would now be world dictator and god emperor for life. It's Ian Dunn, editor of Politics.co.uk, columnist and TV regular. Hello, Ian. How are you? Ah, uh, very well, actually. Thank you very much. Excellent. Uh, you had a great piece on Politics.co.uk this week on a subject that Alex has talked about on the show before: English exceptionalism. And the headline was Brexit. It's time to check our English privilege. And your writer, Graham Richardson, is now living in Europe and he realises he has uh, our national problem of English arrogance. Can you tell us a bit about it? Yeah, I, this was a good piece. I'm glad you picked this up. I really thought this was a good piece. So he was, he's, he's sort of sat in this cafe in Europe trying to find work to support his family. And for the first time in his life, he is out of his comfort zone. And he sat there watching mostly the, the stuff that's going on with Kavanaugh in the US. And he's sort of reappraising in, in a way that you don't really get online very much of someone just being very, very brutally honest about how they've been in the past. I don't, we've never met. I don't get the impression that this guy was dreadful to women in any way, but he was certainly sort of thinking, how many times did I speak over my colleagues? And how many times did I prioritise combativeness in men, but think in women that it was a different mm. sort of thing? And then very quickly he goes, and maybe the entirety of our Brexit thing is a version where we do that and we think the Germans are like, you know, the way that macho guys think of women. <laughs> like, they talk, they talk, they talk. None of it really matters. You just do what you want. It's just a bunch of nagging nonsense and blah, blah, blah. It's a really good, interesting piece. I got quite a lot out of it. Alex, did you recognise this side to the English? I have to be very, very careful here as a, as a <laughs> foreigner to this country. No, listen, first of all, I don't want to fall into the trap of saying, you know, the, the British 
generalize about other people while generalizing about the British. But it's true that there is such a thing as national character. And I think actually as a foreigner here, I have the benefit of observing things for the last 30 years without the hindrance of, you know, maybe having gone through the education system and become emotionally attached to all this stuff for a long time. I think Robert Harris pinpointed a really interesting thing in a recent interview, the author. Um, He said that Britain is the only country in Europe to come out of the two world wars feeling better about itself than before. I think that's really interesting um, because, you know, the wars came at a time of sort of shrinking empire and dwindling national self-confidence. And so you have Europe that's willing to sacrifice anything and pool sovereignty in order to never have this thing happen again. But on the other side, you have the British who look at it as a sort of a stain on their glorious self-image and have always really looked at it like that. So um, the answer is yes. Um, You know, I think it is there because it's a it's a I mean, there's nothing wrong with being proud of your country. The problem becomes an old acting teacher of mine used to say the problem is when the ego is bigger than the talent. And and that's where we're at. I think it's not a problem to be proud of your country, but if your pride is based on an unrealistic idea of the position, size and influence of your country, then it becomes a problem because you can't plot a course from A to B if the A, you don't know where it is. If you have no accurate idea of your position right now, how can you project where you want to be in world markets, for instance, in a you know, in, in 10 years' time, if you mm. don't know where you're starting from, if you think the world is dying to do deals with us, how can you go into negotiations, you know, armed with that belief? Yeah. Um, you know, you're setting yourself up for a f- fall. Yeah. Sorry, that was a rather long answer. Good answer, that. Good. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great piece, and it's on the Romaniacs' Facebook page. Bastard stole it. <laughs> oh. Okay. Um, right. We have a fantastic special guest on the show this week. Deborah Meaden is the linchpin of BBC Two's Dragon's Den, an investor and businesswoman woman who's been su- successful in industries as diverse as luxury textiles and holiday parks. And best of all, she's a staunch Remainer who fights the good fight on Twitter <laughs> and in the real world too. She said she was tired of being bullied into silence on Brexit and that's why she's speaking out. Welcome to Romaniacs, Deborah. Thank how you. are you? I'm, I'm delighted to be here, is how I am. <laughs> <laughs> Although I'm not sure I'm a Romaniac. I think I'm a very well-balanced, thoughtful, careful, carefully considered Remainer. As to a rem- I don't know, that might make me that a Romaniac. That would have been less for a title of the podcast. <laughs> it wouldn't. To- <laughs> You're right, it wouldn't. <laughs> do, do business people feel bullied into silence over Brexit? Do you, do you hear that from friends and colleagues? Um, I think it's it's cert- it's changing, and it might have been changing at the same moment where I felt actually, you know, I'm 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 gonna I'm I've made my mind up now, and I'm going to commit to doing what I think is the right thing to do because it is true that obviously we've got to worry about our consumer, we've got to be worried about how they're feeling, we've got to understand that you know the country's pretty split, and therefore within our consumer base, there's going to be half the people who love it, half the people who don't, half the people who are going to decide on whether or not they use your service or product based on the fact that they like or they don't like what you hear. So I think there was there was an element of that, but I think that the more that businesses understood the difficulties that it is facing, the more people I hear are saying, do you know what, that no longer is the driving factor. The driving factor here is we have got to avert what we consider a business disaster. 
Yeah. Hmm. Was there a moment that convinced you that you had to speak up? Um, I, I've, yes, there was. Uh, I think the, the moment that I began to realise that our democracy had in some way been affected um, through the, um, you know, the whole Cambridge Analytica piece um, uh, and the moment I began to realise that actually we democracy relies on people being you know, knowledgeable, forthright, honest, communicated to yeah. with correctly. And actually, that hadn't happened in the first referendum. The more I thought, actually, this isn't democracy. You know, we have we, we, we should have a vote. And I am quite prepared for the vote to go against me again. But I want to come away from a vote thinking, actually, that vote is correct. That is genuinely what nearly half, or half of this country feels. And at the moment, I'm left with this niggling feeling that actually this isn't what most of the country wants. And that won't go away. And if we're going to come together again, you know, we, we, I feel we have to be asked again. Do, do business people fear actually losing customers over Brexit, that leavers might stop using their services? I do think there was an element of that, certainly. Um, and, and, you know, even I, and I'm pretty forthright. You know, I, I, I don't like being influenced. I always think I should say what I should say. And I, uh, but even I was a bit like, well, actually, do I have to say that? You know, is, is it my moment? I actually, I think um, now more and more businesses that I speak to, uh, as I say, the, I think the problem that they're facing completely overrides yeah. everything else. And they are just doing their dandest to try and protect themselves and... You know, this is the thing about business. Everybody imagines business are these sort of big grey people that you can't really put a face to and they all do this magical stuff that you don't really... We're not talking about that. We're talking about, and particularly I live with a lot of SMEs, you know, these are people who have built their businesses and they're employing their families and they're employing, you know, I've got fifth generation families working in some of my businesses. You know, these aren't big faceless people. These are people who it will hurt and worse, it's already hurting. You know, it's already damaging them. So I I would like to people to understand that word business. We need to stop using the word business. We're talking about people's jobs, livelihoods, you know, and people's future. And, mm. and that's what business is. Mm. We're going to be talking to Deborah throughout the show on business, Brexit and what it all means for the future of our political culture. Plus, are we finally, finally, finally close to a Brexit deal and what's likely <laughs> to be in it? The SNP comes out for a people's vote. What does that mean? And we'll be meeting Dutch musician Amber Arcades, a.k.a. Annalotte de Graaf, whose new album, A European Heartbreak, covers themes that will be very familiar to our listeners. And, of course, producer Andrew will be asking Deborah if she'd like to invest several million pounds in a small but growing podcast company. <laughs> I, I can answer that right now. <laughs> huge, huge returns guaranteed. All that and more after these small reminders from Alex. First, a reminder you can get every episode of Remaniacs a day early if you sign up to support us on the crowdfunding site Patreon. Pledge anything from a couple of pounds upwards and we will send you the show the very moment it pops out of our Breville podcasting machine, like a pair of hot, angry political triangles. <laughs> we will be enormously grateful for your support and, of course, as well as splendid merchandise like mugs and T-shirts, you will also get early bird access to tickets to our live shows and a weekly column written by one of the panel. Search Patreon Romaniacs for more information or just go to the Romaniacs Facebook page. And remember, the People's Vote March in London is coming up on Saturday, 20th of October. This is the big one. Our biggest and best chance to get a final say on whatever Theresa May comes up with and maybe to force a chance to remain in the EU onto the ballot. Celebrities including Sir Patrick Stewart, Delia Smith, Ian McEwan and David Miliband, 
David Miliband is a celebrity yeah, now. <laughs> are all donating to fund buses for the masses to get people to London for the march. We're gathering the best ideas for banners under the hashtag People's Vote Banners. So get on Twitter and share your ideas to inspire your fellow protesters. We'll use our favourite as the official Romaniacs banner for the march and we'll send the winner a T-shirt too. Come rain or shine, we will be there. Make sure you are too. Thanks, Alex. Now, let's have a look at the Brexit news. First up, are we actually getting close to something that can be called a deal? Weird optimism is in the air. Since last week, Commission Pre- uh, President Jean-Claude Juncker has been briefing that there is rapprochement potentiel after, <laughs> sorry, sorry guys, after the disaster of Salzburg. The Irish Foreign Minister, Simon Coveney, told Sky News that a Brexit deal is 90% complete, but reminded us that a solution to the Irish broad border issue is still in Britain's court again. Meanwhile, The Guardian reported that Theresa May has drawn up plans for a secret charm offensive aimed at persuading dozens of Labour MPs to back her Brexit deal. Charm is, of course, Theresa May's middle name. Her people are said to be contacting reasonable centrist Labour MPs like Chris Bryant, Rachel Reeves and Lucy Powell to back her deal in the national interest. So, Ian, uh, first, are there any real grounds for optimism that a deal might be on the verge of being done? Yeah, I mean, the mood music's pretty universal. Um... You, I think, you know, when they say that thing about the 90%, you sort of think, well, I mean, they, they've been saying 80% for a really long time. I think when they say 90%, what, that, I think they've probably made some movement on the geographical indicators, which is a, a frankly insane mechanism that the EU has, but nevertheless, which we're going to sign up to, to show that we're in their orbit rather than the Americans' orbit. Um, there might be some stuff on arbitration in there and little bits and pieces. Nothing that anyone thought was particularly challenging, frankly. There's a, there's a military base in Cyprus as well that they need to sort out. Um... The real sort of heavy lifting is to do with customs union stuff on the one hand and regulatory processes in the other. The regulatory processes is about are you going to sign up for the process of how you make something and not just the outcome standard at the end point. The customs union stuff is where we're going to get some of the muckiest semantic nonsense that you could possibly imagine. Because what they have to show to the EU is that we would stay in what is ultimately a customs union. They're going to give up on this customs partnership stuff and we're going to stay there indefinitely, really. If you put an end date, it's not a backstop. What they will come back saying, I think, is we're only going to stay in it until the technological solutions are available for us to leave. Now, (laughs) those solutions will never exist. That, That will never take place. But that is how they're going to try and sell it back home. So when Dominic Robb stands up in the Commons yesterday and goes, don't worry, it's finite, it's limited, it's blah, 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 I think what he's relying on will be that fact of being able to say, once the tech is there, we'll pull out. And, of course, the second part being, that will never take place. So I think what this does add up to is, frankly, they'll never say it, but it looks and it smells and it sounds like customs union membership. Is that grounds for optimism for Remainers? Because, after all, it's still Brexit. Yeah, it is. I mean, I, so, okay, so for, if, if you're a sort of hardcore Remainer who's a real sort of, you know, people's vote, there's no Brexit I can accept, absolutely not, then I don't think it is grounds for optimism for you because it makes it more likely that there'll be a deal. Even though it's still unlikely, I think overall, it's still, uh, let's say 50 50, you'll come back with a deal. If you are a soft Brexiter, I think this puts you in a really difficult position because this is well short of the single market and the benefits that come with that. But at the same time, what is being proposed does have genuine content to it. I mean, for instance, if you start signing up on environmental standards, on labour laws, on uh, uh, a big part of workers' rights, um, uh, and certainly on taxes and on state aid, what you're doing is locking Britain into the EU system in practice so that it can't just start 
turning itself into a tax haven to try and get a little bit of extra capital over here. So it can't just start cutting down on workers' rights or, or on standards in order to try and just get a little bit of competitive leverage over the European Union. And that is a real tangible good. So when we say Theresa May is about to have a, ta- a charm offensive with Labour MPs, it does not surprise me to read this morning in the FT that there are about 30 Labour MPs who actually seem relatively open to the idea because you are securing something, whereas on the other side, what you get is you know, 60, 70% chance of no deal versus 30% chance of of another referendum. You know, I see where that calculation is taking place in their heads and I do not judge them for being tempted by it. Yeah, because what are your constituents going to say if you vote for something like that and you vote essentially against a deal? It doesn't look good, does it? Yeah, it's difficult. You you, you feel that swell online of people starting to really condemn any Labour MP who's toying with it. And I have to say, I, I I think we should be cautious of being too dreadful to anyone. People are going through real dark nights of the soul, especially in sort of moderate voices on the Labour benches are trying to think, what is the best thing to do for my country? And I think you can go either way on that, but it's not a good idea for us to start you know, poking our fingers in their face and being like, you bastard, because that's really not where they're coming from. Deborah, you've run massive organisations. Do you feel for Theresa May having to run a project she clearly doesn't believe in with people she doesn't trust and where the goals are defined? I mean, not that I'm saying that you ever ran an organisation. Well, <laughs> I can honestly say I don't think I've had all of those parts of play at, at, uh, at any particular time. Um, so I do. I have a, actually a huge amount of respect, you know, put to one side whether I agree with her policies, I agree with the things that she's doing. I actually have a huge amount of respect because apart from anything else, she's still there. You know, I mean, and, and everybody else kind of ran away. So I have I have a huge amount of respect for her. Um, do I... My biggest worry is that she's spending an awful lot of time and energy trying to keep Stitch a party together. And right now, the, the people who are garnering my least respect... Um, harks back to something you were saying, Ian, which is actually it's the people who don't have their country's interest at heart. You know, and, and I believe there's too much of that going on. There's too much time being spent trying to take care of their own political parties, trying to pay, take care of their own infighting. And actually, if ever there was a moment for everyone to say, you know what, we just need to do what's right for the country yeah. now has got to be it. Yeah, yeah. So that's my single biggest issue with anybody. That's not just about Theresa May. Anybody I suspect who are you know speaking for their own good taking their own opportunities instantly they've got my back up you know it's no 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 we've got to seriously think about what's right for this country because from a leadership point of view she is a survivor isn't she i mean all the time people are constantly briefing against her saying she won't last another month we want her out blah 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 and here she still is yeah but being a survivor isn't necessarily i mean it's you know it's great if you're on a shipwreck and you survive um but it isn't necessarily what i want as a country i don't want to survive i really would like to thrive it's not and, great for the ship <laughs> um so i you know yes she's a survivor I, that to me is not the point the point is that we you know we're in a pickle we're very very divided. Um, there are so many options that, you know, my head's going to explode and I'm pretty used to handling a lot of complex issues going on at any one particular time. And I don't hear a voice of of um, clarity that I can really buy into. You know, I can't mm. I can't hear mm. something that I think that's it. That's it. That's what we're going to do. And I yeah. don't hear it from Theresa May. When business people fail as politicians, not that we're thinking of David Davis here, we're perhaps not thinking of it, perhaps because they're used to it. Is it because they're used to an accountable hierarchy and issuing fiats and goals and rather than herding cats? Is there, is there a very different skill set needed? 
Um, it's a, it, it can be a different skill set. Personally, I think it's it's um, it's a skill set that should be brought into politics. So I don't think that the two are mutually exclusive. I think it's got much more to do with being able to adapt your style. Now, I've got 30 businesses. I don't work the same across 30 businesses. You know, they all, they, they, yeah, yeah. some of them are babies, some of them are big. You've got to adapt your style and you've got to know um, which what makes each one of those tick. So, no, I, I don't let... David, to anybody off the hook, um, you know, if they're in politics, they should be very, very good at being in politics. You know, you shouldn't just say, well, you were in business. It's a different set of, of skills. You need to adapt. Alex, what do you make of this charm offensive from uh, May to sell the as yet unrevealed deal? Um, yeah, I think the key word is offensive. No, I'm only joking. <laughs> um, no, l- listen, the, the problem when you come down to the really basic level is this. There are people on both sides of the argument that will definitely vote for whatever she brings back or will definitely not vote for whatever she brings back. And that has everything to do with their political ambitions mm-hmm. and nothing to do with the deal. They, they don't even have to read the deal <laughs> to know which way these people are voting. That leaves a very small number of people in the middle being pulled to one side and the other who have basically become the marginal constituencies of this debate. And that worries me me because it means that you know this 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 body of 600 something people that we've elected to represent us has been reduced down to a much smaller number which is probably reduced down to a handful of influential people on either side and that again is not really democracy can you can you sell something on the national interest when there's no shared idea of what the national interest is um, I think you can sell anything as long as you're good at selling and they're not very good at selling. <laughs> good answer. Well, do you agree, Deborah? Absolutely. I just put my there. thumbs up to yes. that. You know, <laughs> and that's exactly what's missing. You know, it's this vision. It's this thing like this is what we're going towards yeah. as opposed to this is what we're spuddling around in. You know, yeah. We're spuddling around at the yeah. moment. You know, there's absolutely no... And that's what selling's about. Here it is. This yeah. is what we're going for. This is why this is a good thing for you. I don't hear any of that. The interesting thing, I think, is that the people who might be open to having their minds changed have subtly changed over the last few weeks. So as the hard Brexiters, there's 30, 34 Tory MPs at the moment who are basically saying we will vote against anything that looks like checkers. And you sort of get the sense that Downing Street might be starting to give up on securing their vote. Boris Johnson included, David Davis included, Jacob Rees-Mogg included. That's right. And then what that does, you've got to find those votes somewhere because it's yeah. too tight. So suddenly they're starting to look over at the Labour benches. Now that has a very specific effect, which is suddenly your incentive is you need to come back with something that keeps you closer to Europe and actually minimises the economic costs of, of what the deal is. And that's quite an interesting process that is just taking place now and could end up having some quite interesting results. Because ultimately, again if you reduce it down to the absolute baseline, what you have at the moment is, you know, there's there's not an acceptance that I see on the Brexiter side that this whole idea of Brexit depending to cozying up to the states. It really was central to it. Mm. And you now have a geopolitical situation where the states is turning inwards to a sort of trade barriers and an isolationist policy. Russia is going bonkers on the other side. So, you know... Geopolitically, we have to hug Europe closely. There really is no other rational explanation. Whether we leave or remain, we have to have the closest possible cooperation with Europe because they are our rock, ultimately, and because trade depends on geography. 
You know, you can, yeah. you can decide to have a free trade agreement with Australia. It ain't going to make shipping stuff to Australia significantly easier or quicker. Yeah, there's a whole load of boring academic studies that point out that trade with near, closer countries is so much easier than trade with faraway countries. But I won't go into that. They're not boring, they're fascinating. Are you talking about the scattergram you I posted a while ago? I love that scattergram. Uh, I only say boring because I know other people find Anyway, meanwhile, Brexit anxiety for businesses is at its highest level since the referendum, according to a report this week from the accountancy group Deloitte. Bosses are holding back on hiring and investment. Only 13% of business owners are optimistic about the future. That's down from 24% in 2017. And 79% of chief financial officers expect the long-term business environment to get worse because of Brexit. Uh, Dr Adam Marshall, the Director General of BCC, said UK businesses are stuck in limbo because of the Brexit negotiations. Deborah, how's your Brexit anxiety? Does it keep you awake at night? (laughs) Um, so that, the answer to that is two different things. Um, yes and yes. <laughs> um, one, one on a personal level, you know, because Brexit isn't just about business for me. It's, it's about the kind of world I want to live in, the society I want to live in, what it says about us, all of those things. But on a business level, I spend my time walking amongst businesses. You know, I, this is my tribe. This is my home. And they're scared. You know, I, I, I don't think... Well, recently, I haven't had anybody that I've walked into into a business who has not got Brexit absolutely right at the top of their agenda, if only they knew what that was. Mm. You know, you Mm. can't respond when you have no idea what we're dealing with here. And every day it looks it looks different. And and I find myself, certainly through Dragon's Den, I now find myself with a lot of SMEs. You know, they, they, they don't have a lot of cash to flow. They're not as they're not as um, as uh, they can't move their headquarters as easily as yeah, oh, yeah, OK, yeah. we'll go over here. You know, they're, they're not as transient, um, but they are the lifeblood of, the, of this of this economy. And they are terrified. You know, when we're talking about obviously my advice is if you've got supply issues, you need to stockpile. Well, stockpile means turning cash into cash stock, into, yes. mm. you know, and who knows whether that stock's even going to be needed. We don't know the size of the market in the future, you know, and even businesses who, who I'd said six months ago, so what are our Brexit plans? Oh, no, we'll be fine. We only sell in the UK. And then they suddenly look at their processes and they <laughs> think, oh, hold on a minute. Where does my plastic come from? You know, where does that work? Mm. So, so, yeah, I think without exception now, I, I never get a good story on Brexit when I'm talking to businesses. One of your major companies now is Fox Brothers, which supplies designer textiles to Jeeves and Hawks and Ralph Lauren and other luxury brands. What contingencies are you making yourself? Well, we, we, I mean, we've been making in the UK since the 17th century. When I say we, I am not that old. (laughs) (laughs) But um, so, so the core and the spirit of Fox Brothers is very, is deeply, deeply British and actually made in Somerset. So that, that's lovely. It will always remain. But we are going to have to look at, we don't know what trading with Europe. Most of, most probably people don't understand, but most companies, even if they're British companies, although they might be a British brand most cloth most product gets made in Europe so you know we have to kind of send the cloth over to Europe it gets made into something and it comes back into the UK Hmm. well that is fraught you know we don't know what that means but what I can see is us having to set up you know we're looking to grow in the UK but I can actually see us saying do you know what we can't grow in the UK we're going to have to have a centre in in Europe and that is what I hear so many times you Hmm. can't run the risk of cutting off your major market without Europe Fox Brothers would lose 70% of its trade. 
Yeah. yeah, I heard that actually from Imperial College London today, university, which is uh, setting up a, it's going to be basically a joint university with German university so that it can continue to hire people from Europe. Absolutely. Which is, yeah. So do you get annoyed when James Dyson and Tim Martin get him wheeled out all the time as the voices of business? <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I, had a feeling, I had a feeling you were going to say that. Yeah. Um, do you know what? Sometimes I, I listen. I can't speak. I don't know what motivates. I really have no idea what motivates other people. But I, I sometimes feel like you meet people in life who say something. They kind of make their mind up. This is what I'm going to say, and then they can't change their mind later because I cannot understand how anybody sitting in this current situation cannot see the difficulties unless they are so comfortable and well off in their own personal beings that they're really not bothered about the impact, you know, that that, mm. that, that maybe other people will be feeling. Because I, you know, nobody can say business isn't suffering. I mean, the, it's suffering. And we're not talking about, we were talking about business will suffer. You know, there will, lot jobs will be lost. It is happening. This is not a prediction. This is already happening. We're already damaging businesses. So I am sorry to sit in very comfortable situations and say, you know, actually, it'll all be fine. Well, do you know, it might be in 50 years. But in the meantime, we have a whole generation of people who are going to feel the pain. Albeit that at the moment, the unemployment rate is not is not going up yet, is it? Well, no, it isn't. I've got a bit of an issue with the unemployment rate because I think if you work an hour a week, I don't think you're employed. Good point. Hmm. Alex, we all know business hates Brexit. The surprise is that the party of business won't listen to business. What, what does that mean for the future of the Tory party? It's a difficult one because of the alternative at the moment being Corbyn. I mean, in a, in a parallel universe somewhere, you know, as a sort of young Blair-like figure is leading the, the Labour Party and winning the next election with somewhere around 70%, but we're not in that parallel universe. So it, it's interesting. It feels to me like they're stuck between a rock and a hard place and that actually, as uh, Corbyn and his team have moderated their policies and are beginning to listen to business and are beginning to seriously look at being a government in waiting, I think business will begin to swing towards that, but slowly. Ian, do you agree? Is there any possibility that business will ever embrace uh, Corbyn's labour? Or has this all this business about dividends for um, uh, workers put them off? I can't. I just can't see it. And, then I, and But I can't... Obviously, I can't see, you know, businesses ever embracing a government that's doing what it's doing yeah. with Brexit either. So I mean, it's abstain, basically. Basically, it's a sort of spoil-your-ballot territory, isn't yeah. it? Because, I mean, yeah. like, you even think about... You know, think about the, the plan that she's coming... We're a services economy... And she's about to do a trade deal that allows the EU to export all the goods it does, where it has a trade surplus with us, as much as it like, and put barriers to us exporting our services where we have the surplus. Mm. That is fundamentally insane. And I can't see any situation in which business would look at that and go, like, we'll have a bit more of that, please, mate. But at the same time, you, you look at Corbyn, you're right, the workers with shares stuff. There are plenty of ways to do that, sensible ways to do it. What you don't do is just go, oh, we'll cut out 10% of your company. We'll have that. The, the worker will never see it either. We'll just, we'll just Basically, we'll just Chavez that shit up. And, then, and, you know, and off, off you go. You heard it here. You heard it here today. We'll Chavez that shit up. OK. Um, finally, in Brexit news, a quick one. The SNP has come out for a people's vote, sort of. 
Ahead of the SNP conference, leader Nicola Sturgeon told Andrew Marr that her party would back another public vote if May's deal were to fail in Parliament or if it was almost as unacceptable as no deal at all. Sorry, I can't do Scottish accents at all. This makes <laughs> I the didn't SNP... even realise you were trying. <laughs> I wasn't. Um, this makes the SNP, with 35 MPs, the largest party to support a people's vote. Ian, the SNP MEP, Alan Smith, was dancing around this very delicately when he came on the show, but it's not exactly a bombshell, is it? No, and I thought and there was a point, actually, if you remember, I think, where he, he said it kind of clearly, where he, he sort of said, um, look, when it comes down to it, we'll be there. But and, and then I thought the rest of the message was kind of like, but don't expect us to make a lot of noise about it because we can't just keep on shouting about all the referendums in the world for every single situation that we get to. Would you understand what, what the thinking is there? So I thought when she came out to speak, it pretty much corresponded with what he'd been saying to us, you know, if you were to get the sort of pace of it. It's pretty, un, pretty unsurprising stuff, really. I also thought, by the way, this week, the Nicola Sturgeon obviously, you know, hate Scottish nationalism. I think it's a just, just terrible idea and far more reactionary than it makes out. However, Nicola Sturgeon was quite impressive this week. Her manner of speaking, the way she delivers, the, the complexity of the points she's getting across, the moral sort of thrust of the manner in which she discusses it, especially when she's talking about Ireland's special status, going, look, I'm not going to complain about that because that's the way it should be. But I have to tell you that if that's what they're getting, I am the First Minister of Scotland and you can't blame me for therefore saying, well, we are, should be entitled to something similar. I just thought she played an absolute blinder this week. She's incredibly impressive. I absolutely agree with you. If we had somebody like Nicola Sturgeon, and I, mm. find, my, I find that surprising in myself, you know, but I just think that's what... It, because you also trust her, because what we were talking about in terms of, you know, will business ever trust yeah, yeah, yeah. the Labour Party again? I just, don't, you know, I just don't trust Jeremy mm. Corbyn. I don't believe he's going to do what he says he's going to do. You know, I've mm. got the Conservatives doing the wrong thing over here. Her, you kind of think, actually, she spells it out. She kind of tells you the options. She kind mm. of, you know, whether... You know. Yeah. Mm. politics but you know she does spell it out no I, I think she was very impressive this week where are you on the people's vote deborah do you think it's viable do i think it's viable uh, what i do think is viable i think the strength of fi- what it at the very least we need to make the strength of feeling heard because um mm. you know i'm one of the reasons i kept quiet for a very long time is i didn't like the result but i love democracy beyond everything else so you know shut up it's mm. we voted and that's it and it was only when i realized that i'd been broken a bit um, but, yeah, I think at the very least we need to show strength of feeling, which will give some of those MPs this kind of I'm not sure which way to go. Hopefully it will give them a little bit of confidence to say, well, actually, hmm. m- you know, now's my moment. I've been feeling it, but maybe now's my moment. So I think it's very important for that. Um, I always feel a bit ambivalent about the second referendum. But if asked to come down on one side, I think we should have a, you know, we should we, once we know what we're talking about, of course we should have a second vote. Yeah. Mm. And should it be accept deal or reject it and leave with no deal or accept deal, reject it and leave no deal or cancel Brexit? Should there be three <laughs> options or two, to put it more? Um, I think they're probably... Listen, it doesn't matter whatever you're... It doesn't matter what people say. The people's vote is about people wanting to stay within the EU. I don't care how they dress it up. So so I actually think we might as well be honest about that and leave that in as an option, um, only because I personally think that the, the British public is fed up with people being a little bit you know, underhand about the way they work. Yeah. So just say, mm-hmm. say what it is. Say what it is. Do we want to stay? Do we want to accept this deal? Do we want to accept that deal? Do we want to accept no deal or do we want to stay? Mm. Alex... Do you feel that the groundswell of, uh, of opinion for a people's vote, is it, is it really growing now? Is it getting unstoppable? I'm a lot... I feel a lot clearer in this than, I, than I've than i done for a long time. And I think intellectually, 
actually it's irresistible now to have a second vote. Simply because of this, there's been so, so many intervening factors. You know, if, if only one were to look at this quick, brilliant deal that was going to materialise within months that hasn't, that to me was a really clear promise that charted the, the, the way ahead. And that hasn't materialised. So I think you're looking at three years after the vote took place. And at that point in time, one of two things will be true. Either the majority of people will be for it or against it. I think to say we're going to go with the three-year-old vague mandate and drag a country out of Europe that is actually, that has a majority against it, I think that would be a democratic disaster. And there's no one that can sell that to me as a more democratic result than taking the temperature again. Deborah, we had the very inspiring Remainer Now people in last week and they said there's no point in browbeating people that they get it got it wrong. You have to say it's OK to change your mind. How can we best persuade people over to our side of the argument? Well, I, I and I actually completely agree with that because I don't even think we knew at the time they got it wrong. You know, it's, it's all very well now to say, well, actually, now, it, now it's turned out the way we thought it was going to turn out. Look at you, you're wrong. Because actually, I could be sitting there thinking, actually, you know what? We should leave the EU. Um so I think browbeating is absolutely wrong. Um, I think what we have to do is open a door that points to the things that you were just saying, Alex, which is, but life's changed. You know, this isn't about saying you got it wrong because actually nobody knew what they were voting for then. We knew what we thought we were voting for. We knew what we told were potential outcomes. But actually, we're much, much closer to understanding. And certainly as each deal unfolds, we certainly know what our options are now. So we're closer to that. So I think it's much more about talking. OK, but now we actually know. Now let's yeah, ask yeah. the question. Hmm. Yeah. As we mentioned earlier in the show, Bob Geldof thinks Brexit is going to put Britain in cultural jail. And it's surprising how little pop music has reacted to the crisis in Europe. One exception is Dutch musician Annelot de Graaf, who records as Amber Arcades. Her new album is called European Heartbreak, and it captures the disenchantment of the refugee crisis, the rise in nationalism and Brexit itself. Annalot is very much our kind of person. Before concentrating on music, she worked as, a, as an assistant on war crimes tribunals at the UN and she assessed asylum applications from refugees entering the Netherlands. Andrew Harrison met her to talk about her new record. First, here's a snippet of a key track. This is Amber Arcades with Goodnight Europe. Europe, I'm sorry They boarded all your windows and your doors now it smells like death is coming up through the floors Ooh, It's hard to feel like you're alive Maybe we might as well be blind That was Amber Arcades with Goodnight Europe from her album European Heartbreak and Annalotta de Graaf, who is Amber Arcades, is here with me right now in the studio. She is an actual Romaniac pop star. <laughs> Hello, Annalotta. Thanks for coming into Romaniacs. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, if we didn't already have a theme tune for the show, I think that would probably be the song. Europe, <laughs> Europe I'm sorry, they boarded all your windows and your doors. Now it smells like death is coming up through the floors. <laughs> I mean, we try and keep it on the light side uh, here. But the, the, yes. So, so, um, nice and bleak. Ni- nice and bleak. So you, you've worked with refugees and you've worked with war crimes investigators. Was, was the crisis in Europe in European politics and European societies at the forefront of your mind while you're making this record or did it kind of bubble up as you were putting Mm, it together? 
Well, I, when I started the record, it was more from like uh, some sad stuff that happened in my personal life that I needed to deal with and get over with. Uh, so I became very aware of the process of like if something traumatic happens, how do you deal with it, how do you give it a place, becoming very aware of like how you're basically constantly fine tuning your memories to fit in all the events that happen. Yeah. Uh, which is like which can provide like a meaningful meaningful story to your life and provide it with a lot of meaning and insight, but also kind of like makes you view the past sometimes through rosy glasses. Yeah. You know, because like you're constantly editing your story, looking back. You want to feel good about what happens. So when you look back, you want to feel like whatever happened, it made sense. Like it happened for a reason or whatever. So you're constantly fine tuning and looking back. For example, if I think of my childhood, I get like this rosy image of like being in the woods with my dad and like running around with other kids. But in practice, I was probably just like bored out of my mind (laughs) most of the time or like fighting with the kids next door. So yeah. And then um, when I started writing, it was kind of like early, yeah, early 2017, kind of like May, April. Um, then I continued writing for the summer and then a whole flood wave of elections just kind of like ran through Europe in my own country, the Netherlands, but also in France and Germany. Just like in all these countries, these right-wing politics were doing so well. Mm. And I noticed that there were like some parallels in the themes I was already like working on, especially like how all these right-wing politics also really focus on the past, also in a really... Yes, romanticizing way. Yeah, they try to remake it. They try to reimagine it and change what actually happened. Exactly, which is basically what everyone does in their own life story, like on an individual level. But they take it like a step further and like re envision this whole national history in very rose tinted glasses. You know, like oh, everything was better before these refugees were here. Everything was better before we joined the European Union or, yeah. you know, whatever. Everything was better before we moved in together and started arguing because that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's just what you constantly do on an individual level but also a collective level. You make these stories and then, yeah, you want to feel like they they have meaning, yeah. I guess. But it's actually a very lush and lovely record and very kind of, it's not, I mean, I quoted a, quite a down and bleak line <laughs> there, but it's actually not a down and bleak album. It's quite, yeah. it's quite hopeful. Um, do you see the parallels in, because you, you're sort of charting the arc of a breakdown of a, a relationship and the things yeah. that you do after to get over it. Mm. Are there parallels with that in what's happening in European politics? And, 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 yeah, and in... I'd say so. I mean, it's the same, like everything, like these stories... Basically, the biggest theme for the record is like this intersubjective reality that we keep building ourselves like mm-hmm. on an individual level, interpersonal level, and how we make these stories. It can also be a love story between two people, but how, because it's intersubjective, it's not like a real like this table that I'm not supposed to touch here. Because <laughs> <laughs> it makes a rattling noise, yes. Uh, you know, it's like, it's not physical, so it's very uh, easy to like mess with it and like change the story and change the dynamics and change how people perceive it and that's the same in, in a romantic relationship like you meet someone and at first they're like the best person in the world and you can only see the best in them and then after you've been together for 10 years like all the stuff you used to love about them like turns into the most annoying stuff and you're like ah oh, how did I ever uh, so I, but I guess like in a way like politics also always moves in these waves as do like feelings Yeah, you know like uh, I mean I'm from 88, so I wasn't around for much of the 80s. But my mom tells me that in the 80s in Holland, it was very liberal. Government was investing a lot in arts and culture and education. And now it's like the other end of the wave. And I feel like it's the same throughout Europe right now. Well, we hear a lot. I mean, obviously, in Britain, this is primarily a British podcast, but we do have listeners across Europe and the world. But in Britain, we tend to just constant. We tend to think that we're, uh, we and America are the ones kind of falling into the past and becoming obsessed with going over our history. What's no. happening in Holland? What do, is there a similar kind of reaction? I feel like it's the whole West right now. 
Well, mm. I feel like it's like like I said last summer there was this whole flood wave of elections in Holland, but in Germany, in France, in Hungary, I think. Yeah. Uh, I feel like it's the whole West right now. In Holland, we had elections. Uh, I think it was early last year, and then uh, yeah, the right wing parties just won big time. Does that express itself as anti-Europeanism as well? Because anti-Europeanism here is kind of the go-to thing. It's where it's where yeah, you know, kind of the disaffected but also the kind of the angry older right are kind of oh, yeah. all their problems in that box. Yeah. It's 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 I think it's the same the same themes that they focus on. Just mm. like Europe and the refugees. Yeah. Yeah. Your song Goodnight Europe it, it's actually also pretty funny and it, there's a line which goes <laughs> Europe it's not you I'm starting to think it could be me my left ideals and my university degree <laughs> is it our fault is it us wet lefty liberals we took it all too much for granted and we didn't fight for the ideal enough I don't I don't know man it's like it's kind of like me messing around with that stereotype because I was spending way too much time online on these message boards and like reading these Guardian interviews and if you go into the comment sections it's horrible yeah never do that it's like <laughs> it's so it's so polarized you know it's just it's really like the the liberal snowflake versus the dumb Brexiteers you know that's how it's presented from both sides yeah and so you I guess I mean in if those are the two options I guess I'm a I'm a liberal snowflake then so it's also it's the record is also kind of me making fun of myself as yeah. that character and well avalanches uh, are made of snowflakes so you know it's not a bad <laughs> thing to be a snowflake true yeah I mean you're from Utrecht yeah which I'm pronouncing very badly there I can't my That's Dutch accent it. is very bad I'll take it um d- do people in Holland notice Brexit? Is it just a weird thing that's happening somewhere in the foreign news column somewhere? Oh, no. People know this. Yeah? Yeah. And it's also, like, in politics, like, the the, the party that did really well in the Dutch elections, the PVV, with Geert Wilders, you might have heard of him. Yes. Like we he... call him Geert Wilders because we can't do the pronunciation. Ah, uh, Geert <laughs> Wilders, Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, he well he uses like Brexit as an excuse. Well, just like it's, it strengthens him further, you know. Like, yeah. oh, see, they did this in Britain. See, we're like it. Ha- it's possible, and it's it's a sentiment throughout Europe right now, and we're just riding the wave. Like it, it emboldens him mm. in a way. So I feel like people are very aware of it and like affected by it. What are your friends and family saying about what we're doing to ourselves here? Well, I I have a lot of British friends actually who yeah. live in the Netherlands, so they're pretty bummed. <laughs> yeah. And uh, no, I mean I'm from a very liberal liberal snowflake family <laughs> so uh yeah no one's very happy with it i mean you were releasing your first album here in 2016 yeah just as the referendum was going down and you've signed you signed to a british record label you yeah. do a lot of work here. yeah as this vote came through did you think what the hell have i joined in with here what what i'm throwing kind my of. lot in in some level yeah mm. i mean i'm a dutch band but i play like 80 percent of my shows in the uk like we like you said we're with a uk label uh bbt6 is quite a big supporter so yeah. like all our all our attention is focused on the UK. And I mean, I've just gone to a point where I can tour and like walk away with like maybe a tiny bit of profit, you know, but, Mm -hmm. uh, or at least like not lose tremendous amounts of money. But like, if we'd have to get visas starting next year, it would be, uh, it's it's not. Yeah. yeah, And the dreaded dreaded carnet, which a lot of people listening to the show might not know what a carnet is, but when you've got to account for every single piece of technology and equipment that you take oh, across a border. That too, yeah, yeah, yeah. I hadn't even considered that. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. Well, <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a fun thing for everybody to, to look forward to. Um, yeah. I'm going to stick my neck out and say, I don't think there are any other musicians who are former war crimes investigators and experts in the refugee crisis. I think you might be in a category of one. It could be. It's probably just you. Yeah. What took you from that into, into music? Um, I already, like... I've been doing music throughout my studies, just like for fun. I I went to Philadelphia in exchange when I was 21, just for half a year. And and, uh, I'd always had this idea of like 
getting into music more and going there I, I thought oh I can reinvent myself I go to a new city so I bought a, man- a mandolin and met some punk kids and just ended up busking in streets and like at barbecue parties so it, it, it's been kind of on that level and by the time I thought I'd already kind of missed the boat because I was 21 and there were kids who were like 16, 17 who'd already been in like tons of bands. Yeah. So I was like, oh, I'll just keep doing it for fun. And and then it got, it, I mean, I, I'm still doing it for fun, obviously, but yeah. also a bit more serious now. Uh, just like the thing, yeah, the two things have always been existed next to each other, really. What kind of, the war crimes work? What were you doing? What This, this is... Um, so that was so the war crime thing. That was something I did during my studies. I did an internship for six months mm-hmm. in The Hague at the Yugoslavia Tribunal, uh, and I was part of a team of judges. There were, I think, five judges and then twenty or thirty like legal staff, and we were all busy writing like one single judgment. Mm-hmm. And the whole process of writing like one judgment for I think it was for a Croatian war general. Um, yeah, the whole process takes like three years. But I was lucky enough to be there in the last six months of that period. So I got to see uh, the end results. Yeah. So that was quite uh, interesting. So I was I was mostly like reading witness reports of like um, UN observers who'd gone to this village and like observed that they, when they went back the next week, it was burned down or, you know, these kind of reports about like destruction and pillaging yeah. and, and all kind of that stuff. Uh, going through that, making, yeah, uh, shortening it up, like, Fitting it into pieces of judgment. Yeah, um, that must have been quite harrowing to read that stuff. It's with this kind of stuff. It's weird. Like on the one, on the one hand, it's like really it is harrowing and like intense. And you read these reports and you're like, oh my god, like what these people went through. On the other end, it's very detached because you're just like sitting in this office, like so far removed geographically and yeah. temporarily. Uh, temporary. I mean, in terms of time, like all this stuff happened in like the nineties and. Uh, you know, it takes yeah. like 15, 15 years and it's in a, in a whole other region of the world where we're looking at the stuff that's happened, which is kind of weird in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that also provides you with a sense of like detachment to it. Yeah. Why do you think there are so few contemporary songs about what's happening to the European project? You know, the art seems to not want to touch this. The fact that not just Brexit, yeah. but, but what's happening with populism across Europe, what's happening with people turning away from the kind of basic, you know, European ideals of, of openness and, and, yeah. and free speech and democracy. You're seeing a lot of EU member countries that are actively enthusiastic for authoritarianism. Yeah. And music, which used to sing about mm-hmm. this stuff, just isn't. Why do you think that's happening? I don't know. I think it's a tricky... I think just singing, making music about politics is very tricky. I had a hard time writing the song because you're constantly like, oh, like, I'm not a politician. Who am I to say anything about this, you know? Uh, yeah. So you're constantly doubting and it's like... It's hard like to write this stuff without feeling like a kind of like know-it-all, yeah. uh, holier-than-thou type, you know? And uh, it's, that's not a very fun persona to take on, I yeah. guess. But you can, you know, it's possible to write about the about the feelings and the, yeah. and the kind of the sensation, exactly. which I think you do on this yeah. record really well. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It's, there is a there's a great sadness in the in in the record about like here's a lovely thing that seems to be just going away from neglect. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I I kind of looked through my record collection and tried to find any songs that related to, to immigration and, and sort of European mm-hmm. matters. All I could find was Waving Flags by British Sea Power, which is <laughs> about welcoming immigrants into the country. That, what, yeah. that first wave of Eastern European, it was pretty much nobody else wants, seems to want to engage with it. I don't know. Maybe it's maybe it's starting. I have a couple of friends in Holland uh, who just like started this side project band and they just released a record called Klein Europa, which means like Little Europe. Yeah. <laughs> so I feel like it's starting to... Uh, I think it's also a thing that... Just like European identity is such an interesting thing, like what it is or what it isn't. Like I recorded this record in the States and they're just so 
consciously constantly building this national identity there of like we're America like yeah. wherever you walk around there's like three American flags on every street corner you know mm-hmm. uh, I think they start every day with the Pledge of Allegiance in school and in Europe there's not really such a yeah. sense of like identity building or shared yeah, yeah shared yeah shared identity building I mean it's starting on a national level now in all these individual countries where people are becoming very we are Britain or we are Holland or yeah. but it's not happening on the European level oh we are Europe the, um, what, the only area I could find where like we are Europe is, is a unifying thing in pop music is actually the kind of Kraftwerk, David Bowie, mm, John Fox. Yeah. At, at mid seventies and eighties, yeah, electronic music true. used Europe as a kind of a symbol yeah, yeah, of yeah. the future and yeah. of you know Europe after the rain by John Fox and Europe endless by Kraftwerk and yeah. all these things. Yeah, I came across those as well. I was I was when I was thinking about album titles, I did a bit of research like. Oh, I want to do something with Europe, but like, can I? Is it like, can I pull it off? You know, is it like a thing that? Yeah, it it felt very uncomfortable in a way to yeah. call it this or something. Just because like you have so many records called like American this or American that. Like last year, I think we had American Utopia, yeah, uh, American Dream by LCD. Uh, I think even you too has like a record called American something something. Yeah, Heart of America. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a standard, isn't it? Yeah. we're an American band. American is a thing that people can. Yeah, make, make part of themselves. Exactly. Say. Somehow it's a, it's a very strong word. It doesn't even like specifically feel like it refers to yeah. a specific country, just more to like a feeling almost. And yeah. I feel like with Europe, that's not really the case. And maybe it's actually part of our European identity that we are less focused on being mm-hmm. so proud of this identity. I mean, that's kind of like a weird thing maybe, but... Possibly so. Well, the album is out now. It's called European Heartbreak. And with my music journalist hat on, I can tell you, listeners, it is really good. It's a little bit Galaxy 500, a little bit Jane Weaver, a little bit Stereo Lab, and it's actually quite uplifting. And if you like the cosmic soul of Matthew E. White, Anna Lotta recorded the orchestras with Space Bomb. Mm-hmm. So they are super gorgeous. Have a listen on your favourite EU-based streaming service. Anna Lotta, thanks for coming in. <laughs> thanks for having and me. thanks for being an honorary Romaniac. Uh, you've been on tour in the UK this week, and you're coming back to Britain sometime soon, we hope? I hope early next year, yeah. OK, well, we hope to see you then. Roz, back to you in the studio. Thank you, Andrew. That was Amber Arcades talking to Andrew Harrison about her new album, European Heartbreak. Our special guest this week is, of course, Deborah Meaden of Dragon's Den fame. Thanks for doing the show, Deborah. You've been very strong in your opposition to Brexit, but Dragon's Den is very much a Middle England Daily Mail hit property. Has there been pushback from Dragon's Den fans? Do Brexit blowhards like the show? Ah, so that's interesting because I I wouldn't say that the pushback has come from Dragon's Den. Fans. In fact, I don't think I've had any bad news from Dragon's Den fans. But of course, so they they're, they're business lovers. So when I talk about how it affects business, they you know they they kind of get it. But that doesn't mean to say I don't get a lot of pushback. And and I tell you what I do get. You see, I don't actually work for the BBC. You know, I have a mm. life beyond the mm. BBC. I just happen to do mm. twenty days a year on Dragon's Den. So I could you know I I pretty much do what I want to do. But I do get a lot of you know bloody BBC on you know using your time and it's like no. I don't work for the BBC they cannot you know um, dictate what I get to you. what I no. get up to no does it wear you down when the response to reasoned arguments about trading agreements and business future is just leave one or you know personal insults and things like that I I, I love that moment actually <laughs> when you when you you know when you've got to the point in an argument when you when they've clearly run out of counter arguments and they just say well you, we won you lost get over it that's Democracy. my particular favorite yeah, yeah. <laughs> um you know I no I don't you know because I a 
um, I use Twitter a lot and I get that not everybody reads every single thing I do on Twitter. So sometimes people have simply missed the original thread. So I'm quite happy to say, the, say it all over again. Um, but when I'm having a conversation with one person who clearly is just up for a fight, you know, they just want an argument. That point, I say, I, we're, there's no point, is there? Yeah. We're not going to change our views here. Mm. I'm out. I'm out. Yes. yes. Sorry. You've been waiting the sorry, whole time. I'm so sorry. Boom, boom. Boom, boom. But where does most of the online abuse come from? It's hard to tell on Twitter sometimes, obviously, because, you know, there's so many nutters. But what sorts of people? Well, there's two types. There are actual individuals who, and I get to know them because I actually do my own Twitter feeds. So I, you know, you see the same name. And sometimes I tweet and I, I guess. Who's going to be the first one back at me? I kind of, I, I know their tags. Um, but there are also um, concerted efforts. So sometimes I might talk about an individual and I know I'm actually going to get a coordinated bombardment of insults and pushbacks. Um, so I, it doesn't stop me. It doesn't bother me one iota, you know, but but I, I know I know when I'm in that territory and you can see it, mm. you know, you can see. Um, and also, I, I, you know, I know I know who are bots and who are trolls and who are just, you know, just having a pop. Some of the bots okay. are just so obvious, aren't they? It's amazing, you know, David two nine five six seven eight two. And clearly, English isn't their first language. That's yeah. the other. That's the other telling side. They always <laughs> my the my response yeah. currently tends to be, "I went to school with a two five seven Oh, I love that. I'm going to use that as my own stolen. <laughs> But you have to say over and over, Brexit won't affect my lifestyle, but it will affect the most vulnerable. Does that ever get through? Um, well, I, it does to people who um, are... It's it's what we were talking about earlier. It does to people who are pro me. It's it, it you know people who don't like me. Oh yeah, well what would you know? Are you living in your big mansion and your and your you know your lovely lifestyle? And that's really my point. I think actually I'm in a very good. I'm in a well placed position to care about other people because I don't have to worry about me. And I don't say that out of joy. I say that out of concern for my society. You know I don't want to live in this broken society. I want to live in a society that feels in some way unified. Um, so I think I'm very well placed to to um, to worry about the effect it's going to have on people who can't weather the storm as well as me. Um, and actually, to be fair, I tell you what I do. I, I actually retweet it to my followers and they deal with it for me. <laughs> <laughs> you outsource. That's very good. I outsource. <laughs> there. They're very good. Um, well, how is it? Because you live in Somerset, don't you? Is, is it quite? It's quite levy there or...? It is, um, and actually, I think it's the it's the most worrying thing. It is it. There, it was a big leave vote, um, and now it's bored, and mm. that I think mm. is the biggest issue that we actually have is reactivating people who are just fed up with hearing this word Brexit, who switch off when the news talks about the issues, um, because they're kind of missing. You know, Bre the yes or no vote was the easy bit. The actual detail of it, which mm. is how it's going to affect their lives, that's a really important bit. And I don't think they're paying attention. They're mm. bored of it. You know, mm. haven't we left yet? I just wish they'd get on with it. They're not still talking about Brexit, are they? You know, and, and that bit's hard because I know when I when I strike up a conversation, I'm walking in... I'm walking into somewhere that is not receptive. You know, they, they kind of, oh, really? Talk to the hand. So mm. I've got to find yeah, a way yeah. of, of, of sort of getting in there and say, guys, this is really, you know, it's, it's important stuff, it's guys. Important let's, stuff. Get, let's get mm. awake again. 
Does, it, does any particular gambit work for that, for trying to prise open that conversation in a sort of like emotional way? Yes, I try to bring it down to a very personal level, you know, so so um, because there's a lot of other peopleness going on. They're getting on with their everyday lives and it's not really affecting them yet. Um, I think farming's getting a little bit more concerned, but generally it isn't mm. affecting them and they don't know. We don't have big industry, we don't have car industry, so people aren't worrying about losing those particular jobs. But when I start talking about them, so have you got anybody who works in the, you know, have you got anybody mm-hmm. who's affected by and do you how do your grandchildren feel about it how do your children so to try to make it them feel something about it instead and take it out of this place that they put it in this sort of locked up box that says yeah done i've done my vote that's the end of it Hmm. and i think that's the key it this is very personal we voted on a very personal level and talking this sort of highbrow statistics and showing people graphs and it's gonna work heavens knows none of us around this table would ever do such a thing as showing it's good it's good for the for honestly i spend my life talking to people who get it you know, and that's the trouble. And that will be the issue with the people's vote. Mm. We'll, you know, I'm going to talk at the people's vote March and they'll. I'm talking to people who get it. You know, that isn't the point. It's it's the language we need to use to engage the people who have who have moved on. That's personal. Mm. You know, well, how's it going to affect you? What's it done in your family? Mm. Every Did everybody vote leave? Did you know, have you got people in your family who are really... Are you still all speaking? What's it going to be like at Christmas? You know, <laughs> <laughs> Um, all the stuff that's on TV, the sort of business shows that are on TV, like Dragon's Den, like The Apprentice, always seem to be extremely sort of adversarial and conflict orientated, which presumably in, uh, in a sort of day to day business, actually, there's a, there's a lot more cooperation. That. Does it ha- sort of create a sort of misunderstanding as to how that works? Um, I think in the early days, I think it probably did. But actually, Dragon's, if you watch uh, Dragon's now, it's a very different beast to the one that I started in. It was, it used to be, you know, we're all booted and suited and we were there. We were the dragons and you're, you know, come in yeah, and yeah. do your best, you know. Um, but actually, if you watch us now, and I don't think it necessarily we've changed. I think the pictures of the entrepreneurs have changed. They come in knowing a lot more. They're a lot more confident. Um, the style of businesses have changed. We've got a lot of grown up businesses, a lot of tech businesses. You know, they're not quite so baby businesses. Um, and... And I think the BBC are showing more rounded dragons. You know, it used to be a very Mm. one-dimensional, go on then, give us your best shot. And now you can see we laugh, we fight, we get upset, we, you know. So Mm. I I hope that people will understand it's more rounded. And I think The Apprentice has just moved into a different place. You know, it's, I don't think anybody honestly believes that you sit in a boardroom and go, you're fired. I mean, that nobody, (laughs) you know, surely would nobody have a business. So so I think that's kind of moved more into a sort of a, a business entertainment show. Whereas I think Dragons has still got business at the heart of it. We're still mm. properly investing in businesses. And I actually think it's done a lot to engage people, you know, to break that barrier down between business and people. You know, people are beginning to understand business is just a bunch of people coming together for a common cause. They always they sort of shoot back at you on Twitter with that. I know it's quite often been, well, you're just business, right? You just represent business. I mean, does that sort of suggest that there's something that's gone sort of quite badly wrong in the way that business comes across? Do you try to just duck out from the back end and, like you were saying earlier, talk about people instead of something else? Or or is there sort of some sort of mission of trying to show that business isn't just this sort of grim corporate monstrosity floating away in the clouds? I think you're absolutely spot on. Business, uh, we need to stop talking about business. What is business? That is 
a business is a bunch of people coming together. There's, you know, you, we're all in business. We, 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 if you work, you're in business. If you're buying stuff, you're in business. Everybody is in business. It's the word that is a problem. It makes it feel different. Mm. My whole thing about business is that we're all doing it. Even people managing their own household budgets, they're doing a version of business. Mm. You know, we, it, it's commerce. It's what it's trading and 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 it's commerce and it's you know we need to break it out of this big confine of of this massive thing that's got nothing whatsoever to do with us except that it doesn't pay its taxes <laughs> you know well of course business pays its taxes because if business wasn't paying its taxes we wouldn't have an nhs you know we wouldn't have and people wouldn't be paid there would be no jobs you know it's it's so that's that's the biggest thing for me it just needs we pe- need to understand you know it's 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 a wonderful thing it's the lifeblood of of, of any country are there any businesses or sectors that you expect to thrive in a sort of Brexit scenario because maybe they have bigger markets in the States or they they depend on different things, basically? Um, I'm sure. I mean, I, actually, there is a sector that I actually am quite hopeful of under a Brexit scenario, and that is agriculture, because the whole um, EU policy is very much towards sort of big farming. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we're not. I mean, our country, if you look at our countryside, it's not. So actually, there's a, there's a sector there that if you ask me, was there any hope, was there any vision, I would think, well, actually, maybe under the farming sector, mm-hmm. that could well change shape in a good way. Um, and, and there will be businesses, of course, that are well placed to survive. I wouldn't say thrive under, or thrive in a different way under yeah. Brexit, because actually all of the things that everybody's offering as a, this land of milk and honey, we can already do. We can already trade with the States. We can already tra- trade with China. People kind of think that we're locked into the EU. Yeah, yeah. You know, we've got a very, very good deal. We can trade around the world. Why? What is going to get better? So it's not like there's this suddenly unlocking of potential, mm, mm. But, but there will be businesses that say, well, actually, the UK's... You know, I mean, it's it's great, but it's not my major market. I've got a whole place over here, and in fact, at Fox Brothers, you know, we're look, we're now looking to. So most of our trade is done in the EU. We're looking to China, um, but we've always been looking to China. It's yeah, kind of yeah, it's yeah, just of kind course, of bought it of up course. the it's just bought it up the agenda a bit to say, well, actually, now we're a bit concerned about the way that's going to work. Maybe we ought to actually, you know, leverage China a little bit. Is, more. I mean, it's one of the. It, is one of the worries because I I never hear anything about it, but it feels to me like it's also sucking oxygen from anything else that could be going on. So there's no long-term planning, no investment, not, not only for business, but also for policy, for every. Every single sector is obsessed 24-7 with this thing at the moment. And, and that means, I would imagine, that a, a, a business rival that's in Holland that doesn't have to face this huge amount of, you know, uh, contingency planning is is has right now a huge competitive advantage. Well, they've got a absolutely spot on. And that's a great way of saying it's sucking energy out of because, you know, it's just it's filling everybody's heads at the moment. But more than that, of course, the EU has a presumption that over 50% of its parts or have to be sourced within the EU if you're yeah. making anything. Yeah, yeah. you know, And they're already, in Holland, they're already sending notices out saying, guys, you need to find alternative suppliers because we don't know what the trade deal is. Therefore, you need to find within what we know is the EU. That's already hurting mm. businesses. So that's a real... That's not even about sucking up. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. that's fact. That's, that, that's actually happening. And I think in terms of domestic policy, I mean, my worry is it doesn't... Of course, it matters for to me which way the vote goes. Whichever way the vote goes, we have got a... 
whatever follows, we have neglected our domestic policy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We are paying no attention whatsoever to our country. And, and whichever way it goes, we're going to end up with a lot of very unhappy people who are going to blame whatever the result is. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, well, of course, that's because we left. Oh, of course, that's because we stayed. Yeah. You know, whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. Actually, of course, it's because we, for two years, have done nothing but talked about Brexit. So, fun final question. If Brexit were pitched at the den, which of the dragons would invest in it? <laughs> They're all smart people. <laughs> none of them. Please, none of them. Okay, very good. <laughs> um, you famously did Strictly Come Dancing. Um, and it's seen as a quintessentially British thing, but actually a lot of the dancers are from the EU. Um, and in some ways that's a great argument for freedom of movement, isn't it? But I never hear that argument made. Actually, we have just recently heard a group of musicians come out and say, you know, this is going to cause a real problem for us. And actually, that's at a very high level. But at the minutiae level, I used to be in holiday parks and the, you know, guys would come and work for me in the summer and then they'd go over to to Europe and they'd play in pubs and clubs and restaurants, you know, seamlessly. So so there is going to be a real, real impact on the entertainment industry. I don't think that's a good thing. I think, you know, cross-culturalism has got to be a great thing. Not, I mean, generally it is, but certainly for the entertainment industry. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I, it should be talked about more. But every single sector... Every sector should be having its conversation. We should be hearing about every sector because every sector is going to be impacted. Because there was a, there was a certain amount of optimism among you know some small businesses that Brexit would free up red tape and let them export to non-EU markets. And do you feel that's dissipated now? Well, I think it's dissipated because, of course, people are realising that's actually not true. Um, you know, wh- whichever route we go, the amount of red tape has got to... It, it, exponentially explode you know it has to because the point about the eu is kind of we have these negotiations we agree what the terms are and then the red tape disappears because it becomes seamless of course now it's going to be passed back down to the businesses you know they are going to have to deal with a particular red tape they are the ones if they're importing who are going to have to deal with all of the customs control and the border controls and worry about the fact that if they're transporting frozen goods you know it's is it going to get there in time so no i think that um that people are really really worried about the red tape and i think they've gone from thinking too much red tape in the eu it'll be brilliant now oh no oh dear Whole new load of red tape. Whole new load of red tape. And WTO, I mean, I love love people banding WTO around because when I ask them what it means, they're not terribly sure. (laughs) And and, and, and it's, I mean, that is absolutely full of red tape. Mm -hmm. Finally, what's your advice for a plucky young podcast company with low overheads? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think crowdfunding would be an amazing thing. (laughs) Are you already on it? Brilliant. Deborah, thank you. Thank you. We are nearly at the end of the show, which means the Brexit time capsule. Deborah, as our special guest, you get to choose what goes into our cryogenic storage chamber of things we'll miss if we leave the EU. What do you think? Oh, gosh, how big do I have to make that? I I mean, personally, I think it'll be... (laughs) If I had my business head on, it would be... The frictionless trade, you know, it would be if you if you want the grown up answer, it'd be frictionless trade. If you want the personal 
um, impulsive answer. It would be the ability to buy from Amazon anything I want in Europe and get it delivered really, really easily. <laughs> we'll, we'll get frictionless trade all Thank you. wrapped up for you and put in that cash. <laughs> and now it's time for a bit of a non-English EU language to see us off. Let's have some Italian from a listener with the very Italian name of Gavin Hogg. Hey, ragazzi, ricordate, insieme siamo più forti. That means, hey kids, remember, together we are stronger. Words to live by. Remember, you can send us your closing clip in a European language. Just record something on your phone and email it with a translation to info at romaniacs.com. We'll use the best ones. And that's the end of the show. Thanks to Deborah Meaden for being our special guest. Will we see you at the People's Vote demo on the 20th? You will absolutely see me at the vote. In fact, I'm speaking. Excellent. Will your banner say, for these reasons, I'm not out? <laughs> <laughs> but the, yeah, I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for coming in. Listeners, don't forget you can get every episode of Romaniacs a day early if you back us on the Patreon crowdfunding platform, plus smart t shirts, mugs, and a weekly column by one of our panellists, which reminds me, got to write this week. Yeah. <laughs> Just search Patreon Romaniacs to find out more. Thanks to Ian, Alex, and producer Sophie. We'll see you next time. Now, here's our theme tune, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, and a salute to our latest Patreon backers. Goodbye and thanks from me to Tom Lyon, Mark Robinson, Eddie Hutton-Mills, Richard Chapman, Tim Fennelly and Danny, possibly the champion of the world. <laughs> thanks from me to Ronan Glynn, Erica Raffle-Curry, Oliver Shepherd, Mark Adamson, Adam Jackson and James Snedden. And hello from me to Matt Scott, yes, Matt Scott, Mark Housen, Ned Martorell, Rosalind Stewart, Sam Ackland and Stuart Taylor. And thanks to Mark Hooper for hooking us up with Deborah. Many thanks. We'll see you next week. Romaniacs was presented by Ros Taylor with Ian Dunt and Alex Andreo. Audio production was by me, Sophie Black. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. Thank <laughs> you.